Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to the Wrestling Changed My Life podcast. This is your host, Ryan Warner. I'm pleased to say that The Smiths is finally here. This is a seven-part audio documentary that I directed for the National Wrestling Hall of Fame and USA Wrestling's Etched in Stone series. They've been so kind as to let us stream all seven episodes right here on this platform. A special thank you to Leroy Smith, Rich Bender, Jack Carnifix, and Raleigh Petterkin for all of your help this past month. This series would not be here if it were not for you folks. And if you enjoy this episode, please share with a friend and tag us on social media at Wrestling Change My Life. And that's it. We'll see you next Monday with our regularly scheduled programming. But in the meantime, enjoy. Iconic wrestling coach Dan Gable once said, Pain is nothing compared to what it feels like to quit. Give everything you've got today for tomorrow may never come. Gable could be describing those whose achievements have earned them the honor of being inducted into the National Wrestling Hall of Fame. Etched in Stone, the stories of wrestling's legends will take you inside the lives of over 200 of the greatest wrestlers in history as they share their never-before-told stories about their trials, tribulations, and triumphs. Competitors, coaches, teammates, and those who knew these athletes best will also weigh in on their accomplishments with their own unique perspectives. Welcome to the show, folks. You're listening to The Smiths on the Etched in Stone series. My name is Ryan Warner. I'll be your host. So let's get started. In sports, we often like to debate who's the greatest. Well, in wrestling, there's really no discussion as to who the most successful family is. It's the Smiths. For over two decades, from the mid-70s through the late-90s, four brothers from Oklahoma won more titles and broke more records than any that came before them. Two of those brothers, John and Pat, were so good that they were named at the National Wrestling Hall of Fame, our version of Cooperstown, and they're the focus of our story. Over seven episodes, we'll explore the rise of John and Pat by interviewing over 30 friends, family, and competitors from their time. We also look at the age-old question, was the pursuit of greatness worth the cost? So sit back and enjoy the ride as we share the untold story of the first family in wrestling. John Smith. John Smith. John Smith. Probably the greatest wrestler we've ever had in the United States. He took him down. I see a bundle of intensity. I find a way to win. Seems incredible that a family can do that well. Three NCAA champions, the only family to ever do that. It just seems one brother after the other tries to outdo the one before him. A big win for young Pat Smith. Pat Smith, the number one seed and defending champ from Oklahoma State. It was, you know, a wrestling life. You're listening to The Smiths, Episode 1. My name is Ryan Warner. Thank you so much for tuning in, folks. I'll be your host, so let's get started. My journey with the Smiths begins Christmas morning, 2001. It was 6 a.m. My brother Tanner and I bolted down the stairs only to find that Santa had indeed come. He delivered the most beautiful sight that my seventh grade eyes had ever seen. A brand new pair of white Adidas wrestling shoes with black and gold trim and the name John Smith 
written on the side. Now, I had no idea who John Smith was, but I wanted his kicks. They were like the Jordans of our time. But folks, I came to find out that John Smith was not only the best American wrestler of all time, he was maybe the best to ever lace him up. And his brother Pat was also in the Hall of Fame. So I became infatuated with the Smiths. Fast forward to this past spring, I got a call from the National Wrestling Hall of Fame asking if I'd have any interest in telling the Smith story. Obviously I was in, and by August, I was in Stillwater, Oklahoma, sitting outside the Oklahoma State Wrestling Building. How's it going? My name's Ryan Warner. I'm here for a 10 o'clock with Coach Smith. That's me, in the lobby of the Oklahoma State Wrestling Building. I went in the elevator, up four floors, and walked into Coach Smith's office. It's like a museum of wrestling memorabilia. I had 30 minutes until he was due, and so I set up my gear, four microphones, two recorders, one camera, and two chairs. One for me, and one for John W. Smith. I sat and waited. All right, folks, we're set up in Coach Smith's office. It's amazing in here. Got about five minutes till he's due. Now, as I sat there, I was nervous. I'm not going to lie to you. Not so much to interview John, but more so because I knew I'd have to ask him about the bad blood between he and legendary Iowa coach Dan Gable. Bad blood that has its roots in a controversy that happened in the summer of 1984. And that's the focus of our episode. We introduce you to John, his family, and take a look at what impact the controversy of 1984 had on his career and how much blame falls on the shoulders of legendary Iowa coach Dan Gable. Okay, we ready to roll? Let's talk some wrestling, John Smith. Yeah. That's John right there, standing 5'9", weighing a trim 160. He looked like he could still scrap. Now to really understand the controversy of the summer of 1984, we have to go back in time to John's childhood to see where it all started. Dell City, Oklahoma. This is the home of the Leroy Smith family. And it's also the home of John Smith, the second son in a family of 10 children. Um, I was the seventh uh, of 10 born um, and when you're the seventh of ten everything's competitive that's john smith the audio is from a seminar he was speaking at back in 2016 you know you're growing up in that environment where you know truly i mean if you didn't get up early enough for breakfast um, you may not have breakfast some people would call it dysfunctional there's nothing dysfunctional about it it was healthy it was competitive uh, my parents had their hands on us. His first match, I'm not saying it, I'm killing me for saying this. He was only four and a half years old, and he was wrestling. We used to have clubs here in Oklahoma, and he was wrestling with the club over on the northwest part of town, and he got beat, and he started crying, and all five of my daughters ran out there and picked him up and hugged him, kissed him, and he was just boo-hoo, and he was heartbroken. You're hearing from the matriarch of the Smith family, Mrs. Madeline Smith, was sitting in her living room, the same living room that John Smith grew up in. When I was in grade school, I, had, I played football, basketball, track, and I wrestled. And wrestling was always my favorite sport because my older brother did it. 
as soon as John could crawl, he probably knew how to wrestle from bottom. That's Leroy, John's older brother by seven years. He'll be a central character in our story here, so pay attention. I was the first multiple state champion at Dell City High School. But I got a hold of him as much as I could, and and he knew how to wrestle before he could walk. My brother Leroy's probably been the biggest influence on my life. He, um, growing up, being able to uh, work out with him has um, really helped me. But for John, looking back, it wasn't always sunshine and rainbows. You know, you grow up with in wrestling and you have an older brother that's seven years older than you, it's not good. You know, you have to do things that you're not really ready for. And, and of course, he was rough. You know, I was seven years older than John. I hammered him. Uh, Leroy was mean, man. He was a mean guy to me. Yeah? Oh, yeah. yeah I had, I had, a, I had a, a mean streak in me. Uh, and, and in those days, wrestling in those days, you could... You could apply some pressure on people. So John's got this older brother who's a little rough with them, but hey, whose older brother isn't? But one day when John was seven, his mom came home to find he and Leroy going fisticuffs in the backyard. What, what happened that day? I, walked, I looked out my kitchen window and I heard somebody, this noise out there and the loud voices telling each other, one calling one a baby and the other one. <laughs> <laughs> the other one said, you're cheating, you're cheating. And I looked out there, John's all red in the face, and he's trying to fight Leroy off. And finally I went out there and broke it up because it was really getting, he, John was getting mad because he was getting beat. But John was so competitive, you know. And, and Leroy was trying to, and Leroy was trying to put him in his place. He hated losing. And uh, they'd all feel sorry for him because he would cry. And for a young John, it wasn't just Leroy who could put him in his place. His sisters knew how to wrestle, too. Well, growing up in a large family like I have, it's, it's helped in a lot of ways because I think in my fourth, fifth, sixth grade years, um, I had a workout partner every night. If it was my sister or if it was my brother, and uh, half the time I was fighting a losing cause because I was getting beat most of the time. You know, I could go all over the state or all over the nation and win anywhere, and I couldn't, I couldn't beat my sisters in my own living room. Yeah. Outside of the living room brawls, the single most important event in John's childhood was watching the 1972 Olympics. You know, I think the first time I thought about being an Olympic champion is when Oklahoma's own Wayne Wells won an Olympic gold medal. Well, I'm awful happy. That's all I can say. Dream come true. Little did John know that Oklahoma was a wrestling hotbed and had produced more Olympic champions than any other state. But all I knew is reality, and reality was seven years old, Wayne Wells was an Olympic champion, and that was something I wanted to do. Now, most kids, when they watch the Olympics, they get excited and then a week later they forget about it. But John, he was possessed with his new goal of becoming an Olympic gold medalist. I have a paper that he wrote in the seventh or eighth grade about his, they had him, it was his biography that his English teacher was having him write. And in this biography, I've still got that, I can't remember it all, but I remember him saying, no, he went to win state, then he went to win the big eight, then he wanted to win the Olympics. Did you believe him at the time? I knew he was good. 
When I started wrestling, all I ever thought about was was winning. I remember grade school. Some of the coaches, you know, said you don't want to wrestle that guy. He'll 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 hurt you. He'll rip your you know arms off. That's Corey Bays. He remembers watching John at the Oklahoma youth tournaments. John was just one of those that just he was. If you tried to take him down or do, he, he, he would. There would be a fight on the way down. I mean, he was just a. Uh, he was. He, he didn't look tough, but he was. He was extremely mean. By the time John got to high school, changes were afoot. His brother Leroy was now wrestling at Oklahoma State. President Reagan was ushering in a new wave of politics. America is back, standing tall, looking to the 80s with courage, confidence, and hope. And John began focusing in on wrestling to the exclusion of all else. You've got to be a one-sport man, I think, by your high school year. I think you ought to set, set aside one sport you want to do, and you've got to compete in just that sport and train you around. He really didn't do all the things that the other kids were doing in high school. Mm-hmm. He was taking care of himself, especially during wrestling season. Now, during the season, John excelled on the mat, winning two Oklahoma State titles. But it was during the summer where he made the biggest gains. You see, back then, the Oklahoma State head coach ran a series of wrestling camps across the country, and he asked John to help work the camps. We just kind of traveled around. I mean, from, from uh, I remember being in Montana several times. I remember being in uh, Ohio. I remember being in uh, New Jersey. I remember being in California. I mean, it was just like, you know, over three, three summers, I think it was three or four summers, I was just everywhere. Now, I know what you're thinking. It sounds fun to spend the summers on the road. But ask yourself this. Would you want to spend all of June and all of July working wrestling camps six days a week, three sessions a day? But that's what John did. He was spending six hours a day on the mat with the best wrestling mind in the country, Tommy Chesbro. It'd be like a young football player spending his summers with Bill Belichick. Of course, he was the best teacher I'd ever been around. I mean, you talk about... You know, in the drop of a hat, can do a two-hour clinic. He could do a three-hour. He could do five straight hours. And just boom, 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 boom. Skill, 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 skill. Before long, John became the main drill instructor for the camp, which meant that as the Oklahoma State head coach was barking out orders, John Smith was showing a gym full of high school wrestlers how it was done. I really developed through, through those summers into... Um, a very knowledgeable wrestler. You know, I didn't really take those skills from those camps and immediately start using them. Um, I think when my when my attitude changed about wanting to be the best, those skills all came back. Spending the summers on the road paid off for John. As he finished high school as one of the top recruits in the country, he decided to wrestle in Stillwater, for one of the great dynasties in all of college sports, Oklahoma State. Cowboy wrestling, a tradition of excellence in Oklahoma for over 70 years. More national championships than any school in the country. Back in the day, wrestling was the ticket. That's Rex Holt. 
He's been the voice of cowboy wrestling since the late 70s. When I was in college, it was, there's no doubt, that was that was the ticket. It wasn't basketball, wasn't football, wasn't anything else. Uh, it was pretty much a wrestling school. And the fans, uh, the students, uh, they were lined up outside waiting to get in all day long. This is what it's like to be an Oklahoma State wrestling fan. Starting in the 1920s, you win 27 NCAA team championships. During that time, you also crown seven Olympic gold medalists. In short, the center of the college wrestling universe resided in Stillwater, Oklahoma. But then, the universe shifted. Uh, Name is uh, Dan Gable. There's Dan Gable, the Iowa coach. Champion wrestler and champion coach and loved the promotion of the sport. That's Dan Gable. He was named the head coach of Iowa in 1975 and began rattling off national title after national title. For the University of Iowa, it was a tremendous day. They wrapped up the team title, the NCAA Wrestling Championships, before the finals began. Cowboy fans took it personal and began to hate Dan Gable and his Iowa Hawkeyes. He was kind of like, you know, the evil empire, you know, like in Star Wars. He just was one of those guys you just, he was on the dark side. Uh, Gable had instilled, guys, they put their pants on just like we do. We're just going to go crush them. We're going we're gonna to beat their ass. Yeah. There isn't any question that uh, Iowa and Oklahoma State at that time was, was heated battles for a lot of reasons, not just the outcome of the score, you know. And didn't care for each other. Maybe still a little bit that now. Um, you know, there, there's, there's a level of um, there's a level of respect, but caring about each other, probably not. Now, by the time John was a freshman, Oklahoma State had gone 12 years without winning a national title. A lifetime if you're a Cowboy fan. And I was winning ways didn't sit well with the athletic director. Well, and I remember the, the athletic director at the time was uh, Myron Roderick, and he, he basically gave Chesbro an ultimatum. If you don't win the nationals, you're gonna, I'm going to replace you. Chesbro was in the midst of maybe losing his job, you know. Um, so it became very serious, you know. Now, fortunately for Coach Chesbro, the 1984 Oklahoma State team was loaded. Like I said, 84 was one of the best college teams I can remember. The deal with our team is we were so close in the 80s. That's Mark Perry. He was the 118-pounder for the Cowboys that season. It was John's main workout partner. He remembers the first time that John John stepped foot into the Cowboy wrestling room. It wasn't about, you know, coming in and just saying, well, I'm a freshman, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm going to redshirt, or I can't make the team, or I can't do this, because, I mean, we had some good guys here that he had to beat to even make the team. But, yeah, I mean, he was so competitive, you know, and if you're, not, if you're competitive, you've you got a chance to make it. I think he just mentally thought, I'm going to make this team and I'm going to be like, I want to be with Kenny Monday and Michael Sheets and I'm going to, I'm going to be like them. As the 83-84 season started, John cracked the lineup and was now ready to test his talents against the best wrestlers in the entire country, the NCAA Division I circuit. What do you think his goals were stepping onto campus that first year? Oh, I think absolutely to be a national champion. You're hearing from Chuck White, John's brother-in-law. He was there to watch John that freshman year. 
I think he was a student of the game, and he didn't really set any boundaries on himself, and he could always figure out a way to win. 126, John Smith of OSU. He's a freshman from Dell City. This is a tough, tough freshman. Look at that counter move by John. Unbelievable. Two points for a takedown. The crowd reacts. I beat a lot of guys that year just on pure attitude. Got to watch Smith. He wrestles every second, and he uses every part of the mat. We've seen him score so many crucial takedowns, and uh, in the last second or the or right at the edge of the mat, he never lets up. And to see John just right out of the gate, from high school to college, that you know, he didn't redshirt that year. He came in and was, you know, he was on fire. He has been super this year, and I would have to, I'd have to see a freshman that has been any better this year. John was having a fantastic freshman season. By the time Iowa rolled into town in early February, he was ranked third in the country and ready for his first dual meet against Dan Gable and his Iowa Hawkeyes. For me, that was one of those moments in your life that you're going, oh my gosh, I don't know if I've ever been that excited. You know, you're a, fresh, a true freshman, and, and you're wrestling in one of the biggest dual meets of the year. From jam-packed Gallagher Hall on the campus of Oklahoma State in Stillwater with outstanding collegiate wrestling. The Hawkeyes of Iowa ranked one, the Cowboys ranked two. I can remember walking to the gym like two hours before, and, and this line was just, you know, going all the way down the street. I mean, and, and it was two hours before, you know, and I'm like, uh-oh. I said, this is serious. <laughs> now, if you were there that night, you would have seen 6,000 fans stacked on top of each other with a big orange mat on the center of the basketball floor. The Iowa wrestlers were warming up with Dan Gable pacing behind the bench. Below deck, the Cowboy wrestlers were warming up. Corey Bays takes us inside the room. You literally could hear the band playing, and you could hear the crowd wrestling or kind of just muffled of people. And when the warm-ups were complete and the dual meet was about to start, the Cowboy wrestlers would walk up the steps, hang a left, and burst through the doors to take the mat. As you run out and you look up and there's just thousands of people it was, it, it made you, it was a sense of, there ain't, I, there's, no, there's no way I'm going to lose tonight. So now we got both teams on the mat. The Oklahoma State wrestlers in their orange and black warm-ups are now just a few feet from the Iowa guys in their black and gold. The atmosphere was very intense. Teams score three to nothing. Oklahoma State, 126 pounds. John Smith, O State, Mark Trezino, Iowa, and we're underway. Zeno is shorter than John Smith, but he's very, very muscular. The early periods went Trezino's way, but by the third, John had edged his way back into the match. 30 seconds left, 5-3. to three. The crowd rising to their feet. And with 8 seconds left, John was down by a point. Check that. 8 seconds left on the clock. 5-4 to four the score. 5 seconds. Smith, take down! Take down! 3 seconds! Two seconds, one second, that'll do it. He took him down. John Smith, two penalty points and a headset for a takedown at the three-second mark. And John Smith of Oklahoma State, the winner, six to five. I told you not to get him out. Are you believing that, Rex? <laughs> Fan 
fantastic takedown with three seconds. It, it was one of those matches that you just, you know, you, you, you feel the excitement and and um, and you help your team win a big duel meet at a at a one time in history, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's but uh, definitely my memory of it is just one of my cherished moments in in my career. You know, just the, the pure excitement. I don't think I've ever felt that other than maybe two or three times. The Cowboys went on to crush the Hawks 24-6, to giving Gable the worst beating in his career. What was the atmosphere at Gallagher like that? Oh, jeez. They had a lot of fun. They had an unbelievable lot of fun. But, uh, no, I happen to feel that that was probably one of the best nights in Stillwater history and wrestling for kicking Iowa's butt, or any team. Just dominate from it just steamrolled. Coming out of that duel, John Smith cemented himself as a crowd favorite. The Cowboys were now the number one team in the land, and Coach Chesbro's job looked like it was safe for the time being. But every wrestling fan knows that the only thing that actually matters in a season is what happens in March at the NCAA Championships. Now for the non-diehards among us, The NCAA tournament is the apex of every college wrestling fan's year. During it, we crown 10 individual national champions, one at each weight class, and one team champion. It's like March Madness, but for wrestling. And let me tell you, some say it's the toughest event that a college athlete can compete in. It's a beast. You know, three-day weigh-ins, you know, um, you wake up in the morning, you go warm up you wrestle one match you go back you come back three hours later you know um, and you do it for three days you know now the 1984 ncas were a huge event for a couple reasons one it was john's first attempt at ncaa gold a crucial step in his journey to become an olympic champion but on thursday night disaster struck in just the second round john was upset by an unranked wrestler and was eliminated from the tournament. Here's Mark Perry again. Obviously, when you're when you're one of the elite kids in the country or whatever, and you lose, it's obviously it's devastating. Was was I knowing myself now? Was I ready to place? Heck, no. I wasn't mature enough. You know, I was still things were running through my mind like I was a little, you know, uh, seven year old kid. You know. Um, does that is that a reflection on your coach? Sure it is, unfortunately. John's loss was a major blow to the Cowboys' chances of winning a team title. And by Saturday night, Dan Gable and the Hawkeyes prevailed. It was devastating for Cowboy fans. If I would have done something my freshman year, we would have won. Even worse, the athletic director kept his word and fired Coach Chesbro, who had been the coach of the year that year. I knew it, it, it crushed him um, because he loved Tommy Chesbro. I mean, that was a dad to him. This is Corey Bays. And he hated to see Tommy, you know, get fired. Cowboy Nation was shocked and enraged at the decision to let Chesbro go. Even Gable couldn't believe it. My reaction was, wow, <laughs> these guys are serious business down there. It's serious business. To rub salt on the wound? The athletic director offered Gable the job. Roderick uh, called me and offered me a deal that was like, how you know, how can you re- you can't refuse it, you know, and and uh, but I took it, I took it home, 
to my family first. And I knew it wasn't going to happen after I had a discussion with my family. In the end, the Cowboys hired an outsider who we'll talk about in episode two. But that was it for John's freshman year. A magnificent regular season ended with a heartbreaking defeat. But it's not the end of this episode because the controversy that ensued in 1984 was just getting started. See, John's role was about to shift from star wrestler to sparring partner for his older brother, Leroy, who was getting ready to try out for the 1984 Olympic team. So Leroy, what did the Olympic trials mean to you back in 1984? It meant, it was was everything I wanted. And so that's my goal is to, to be an Olympian and be an Olympic gold medalist. Which meant that John, who was only 19 at the time, had to spend his summer in the wrestling room helping Leroy. And, and, and I remember working out with him when he was training for 1984 Olympics and him screaming at me because I, I, you know, I wasn't working hard enough. See, the Olympics are the pinnacle in wrestling. Winning an Olympic gold medal is the highest honor you can receive in the sport. And so you can understand if Leroy was a little nervous or agitated leading up to the 84 trials. His lifelong goal was about to be realized or crushed. John was there to take the wrath. Yeah, and I wasn't ready for him. But the one thing I did learn is I saw what it took, right? And I don't think I gave that till a few years later. You know, I did see what it took. Mm-hmm. You know, even at the moment, it was miserable going with him, being around him, and because you're not prepared to train like this in the middle of the summer. Nor did I want to, you know. And that year, there was added pressure because the best wrestlers in the world wouldn't be headed to the summer games. Good evening. The Soviet Union will not be taking part in the 1984 Olympic Games to be held in Los Angeles. Which meant that if you won the trials, you pretty much won the Olympic gold medal. Now for Leroy to win the trials, he would need to beat an Iowa man. Randy Lewis. We're looking at a nervous Randy Lewis from Iowa City, Iowa, wrestled at the University of... Lewis was one of Gable's star pupils and had made the team in 1980 only to have the U.S. team boycott. And so here we are, the 1984 Olympic trials in Allendale, Michigan, the site of one of the most controversial matches of all time. Here's what happened. Randy and Leroy wrestled a best of three series with the winner advancing. Randy won match one, and then he won match two. Leroy's Olympic dreams were over, or so it looked. See, after the second match, Leroy's corner protested a scoring exchange that happened late in the second period. To the shock of the Iowa fans, the protest committee agreed and overturned the results of the second match. And so now, Leroy and Randy had to wrestle the second match again. It's confusing, I know, but stay with me. So Randy and Leroy re-wrestle the second match, and Leroy wins. And then in the third match, Randy blows out his knee and is done. And just like that, Leroy is now the Olympian. In the blue singlet from the Cowboy Wrestling Club, Leroy Smith. Back in Oklahoma, the Smith family was elated. They had an Olympian in the family and hung Leroy's plaque proudly in the living room. Chuck White remembers the day. At that point, that was like the main focal point in the room in the house that had, you know, 136 and a half pounds, 
Olympic qualifying champion. Now that year, the 84 games were held in Los Angeles. And so the Smith family planned a cross-country road trip to go and watch Leroy compete. It was to be John's first look at the Olympics. For Chuck, he was just excited to check out California. We had hotel rooms. We were going to Anaheim. Well, for most of it, it's going to be the first time we ever went to California. You know, I mean, I'd never been out there to that point in my life. So, I mean, we're going to be right there next to Disneyland. I mean, we, we were the Beverly Hillbillies. We were going to California. You know, we were excited. But as the Smith family was celebrating, Randy Lewis was disgruntled. He felt that the Olympic birth had been stolen from him, and he protested the match all the way to federal binding arbitration. Yes, a wrestling match going to federal binding arbitration. It had never happened before. You know, you start getting these grumblings, hey, there's a arbitration, there's a lot. You know, and I think nobody, none of us really understood truly what was going on. And that includes Leroy Smith, the Olympian. I was a r- really pretty naive about, and so was my dad to a certain degree. And so on July 4th, arbitration began without Leroy or his attorney present. Mark Perry again. Leroy's in L.A. training for the Olympics, and they go to, they're in court and they're doing arbitration, and they're already at the Olympics. The arbitration wasn't with Leroy. It was just with USA Wrestling and Randy Lewis. That's Willie Baker. He was Leroy's attorney during this whole debacle. Leroy didn't even get a chance to have any you know, role in that. But I didn't go to Chicago, didn't have, no, didn't have uh, uh, representation there. Well, I think the, the problem was, is, was that the leadership at, at USA uh, Wrestling at the time uh, didn't really understand what they were up against. So the arbitration begins. Randy Lewis is there with his attorneys, and he also brought a star witness. Dan Gable. Now the problem is that in 1984, Gable was the Olympic coach and Leroy was the Olympian. So why was Gable in court supporting Randy? What I remember about it was getting a call from an arbitrator or somebody, not not that arbitrator, but his office was said that that they were that you needed to go to an an arbitration and I really didn't really want to he said well we're going to subpoena you the central question in the arbitration came down to this was the protest a move a judgment call and it's kind of similar to holding in the NFL you can't challenge a holding call and in wrestling you can't challenge a judgment call and so the arbitrator point blank asked Dan Gable and I remember The, the the judge or whoever the whoever was doing the thing asking was it a judgment call? Uh, yeah, yeah, it was a judgment call that reversed the decision. And that was the nail in the coffin right there. And so, if you're the arbitrator, you have the most popular wrestler of all time in Dan Gable, telling you it was a judgment call. What do you think he's going to do? And so, in mid July. Just weeks before the Olympics, the arbitrator announced a ruling that stunned wrestling fans. What he did was this. 
He ruled in Randy's favor and ordered that Leroy and Randy re-wrestle match two with 84 seconds left with Randy Lewis winning by a point. The way they resolved it was stupid. I mean, they should have basically just wrestled a whole new match and the winner is the winner. That was Mark Perry. Here's Willie Baker, Leroy's attorney. I mean, we all know if you if you got a six-minute match or eight-minute match, whatever it is, but if you're only going to have to wrestle a small portion of that, it changes all the dynamics. There's just no way that that equates to what we all know as, as how, you, how you wrestle and what wrestling's about. Speculation over Dan Gable's involvement absolutely exploded, folks. He became the most hated man in the Smith household as well as all of Oklahoma. This is where it starts to cross over into uh, Gable's involvement and why as Gable is the Olympic coach, which presumes a neutrality of some sort. Uh, it just seems like somebody, either him or USA Wrestling, should have said, hey, in fairness, Leroy's side needs to be represented in this. And so think about this if you're Leroy Smith. You make the Olympic team in June. They throw a parade for you in your hometown. You get all of the Team USA warm-ups, all of the gear, and you fly to L.A. Weeks before the opening ceremonies, you get a call that not only are you not the Olympian, you have to re-wrestle 84 seconds, losing by a point. You know, I just said it's my only shot to be on the team. And uh, the clock seemed like it just went like that. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's that, that was it for a dream and, and uh, heartache and, and uh, disappointment. If you can't guess by now, Leroy lost the wrestle-off and was now out of the 84 games. I sat on the top of that stairway and cried my heart out. I was heartbroken. Willie Baker and Leroy's dad flew to L.A. and pled to a federal judge to overturn the result, but to no avail. The federal judge upheld the arbitration, and it was over. I roomed with, with Big Leroy, and when we stayed in the same motel room, uh, but he said... You know, this isn't, this isn't the end of the world. And uh, good Lord hadn't promised us that we're going to win everything or be successful in everything. And uh, we still got a lot of things out there that are very important. And uh, it's just, I don't know, just one of those things that will trouble me to the end of my days. I, I know that it just didn't work out the way we thought it should. The next day, Leroy flew home to Dell City. I remember him coming back from the last match minute and a half or whatever it was and him saying I'm heartbroken but he says it's not going to get me down he says I'm going to forget it put this behind me and I'm going to go on now while all this was going on John Smith was watching as his brother had his Olympic dream ripped from his hands to this day he won't talk about it why was Gable's involvement such a big deal? I don't know. I, you know, it's, you just leave it, leave it at that. I'm not going to go into it, but, um, you know, I've got my thoughts, and they're not very good. Just put it that way. And so began a fire that festered deep within John Smith. His older brother had been wronged, and someone had to pay. And, of course, uh, the whole episode of, what happened to him 
was a whole nother level of motivation for me. And still today, it bothers me. This incident with Leroy. You're listening to Coach Gable again. Brought John Smith up several notches to where he became who he became. That's it for episode one of The Smiths. Thank you so much for tuning in. Be sure to check out episode two to see if John could use the pain from 84 to achieve NCAA glory. Hey guys, if you want to help us spread the word, please rate the episode and share it with your friends. The Smiths was written and directed by Ryan Warner. Executive producers include USA Wrestling and the National Wrestling Hall of Fame. A special thank you to the entire Smith family, Rich Bender and Leroy Smith. Etched in Stone is an exclusive production of the National Wrestling Hall of Fame and USA Wrestling. Download your free souvenir book of any of the Etched in Stone stories produced at nwhof.org. The storybook includes the written story and is filled with pictures and videos of their live matches. And while you're on the website, take a deeper dive into the profiles of the 179 distinguished members inducted into the National Wrestling Hall of Fame.